All right. I think I'm just going to stay down here again. Seems silly to go all the way up on the pulpit for four people. <laughs> In fact, it seems silly to even have the microphone, but since we record it for the podcast, I guess I have to wear it. <laughs> so, we've been doing a series on the sanctuary. And like I said, we could probably make this at least 30, 35 different point sermons on just the sanctuary alone when we really break this down. So we'll just see how far we can keep going. And uh, I know Deli said that he might have a sermon on the sanctuary as well, so he uh, can jump in on that as well. So before we get started, uh, we'll just say one more quick prayer for myself. Dear Heavenly Father, I ask that you use me as your mouthpiece, that you guard the words that I'm going to say, that they be your words. We ask that you guard the people here, that you guard their thoughts and their hearing, that they stay concentrated on your message, that they may absorb and hear the message of your sanctuary, that they may be applied to their lives. In Jesus Christ's name, amen. So, I want to go ahead and start off with a well-known scripture. I will turn to Genesis 1, and uh, I don't have any slides today except for the title slides, so everything is going to be flipping through as fast as you can like I always do. (laughs) So we'll start at Genesis 1, verses 26 and 27. It's a well-known scripture, and it's about the creation of our parents, the human race. It says... Then God said, Let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over all the earth, over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So man was created in the image and likeness of God. There was, at this point in time, there was no sin, there was no death, everything was perfect. They were created in that perfect image of God. They were designed, according to God's plan, that they would live forever. There was no, it was never God's will that anyone should ever die. However, God knew that that wasn't going to happen in advance. But God never gave man an immortal soul either. So he intended us to live forever, but we weren't given an immortal soul. So I want to look into that uh, at this point. Uh, God did give us a very specific secret to perpetual life. So if we want to read in Genesis 2 and verse 9, we're going to be in Genesis most of this, uh, and we'll, we'll see that they had to continue living, to continue living, that they had to eat from this tree. And it says, Out of the ground the Lord God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So we have these two trees here, and we'll get to the second one. But we're going to see that the source of life was not inside man, but outside man. That they had to to continue living, to continue having this perpetual life, that it required a source that was outside of man that God provided. And you could almost imagine this like a battery charger. 
So we had to continually go to this tree and eat of this fruit to recharge our batteries. And of course, God is the source of that energy that would recharge us. And interesting enough, I was going to mention it already, but Revelation 22 verses 1 and 2, we brought that up in the Sabbath school this morning. But we learned about the tree that was going to live on both sides of the river. And every month it was going to produce 12 fruit. So we know that every month we're going to come back to that tree and be regenerated and recharged by that tree and that we require to have that. Without it, we will eventually wither and die away, but we can continue to have that when, when, we, when uh, we're in heaven. So what we're going to find is that we see that even after they were kicked out of the, the Garden of Eden, that the antediluvians the people before the flood, had their lives extended in a way because they were still all basically receiving some of that energy and some of that charge from Adam and Eve from being in the garden, right? We had people before the flood were living 930, 960, 969 years long, and all of that was from that life source that was still flowing through the bloodlines of Adam and Eve, now, if we turn to Genesis 2, verses 15 and 17, we're going to see here about the choice that God gave us. 15 through 17 says, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in that day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God gives us this choice. He gives us this other tree to provide us with freedom, right? If there was no choice but to follow God, you could have of every tree, then it wouldn't be freedom. It wouldn't be free. So man had to actually choose to obey. The clearest indication of what we have here is that God is what defines good and evil. We don't have uh, a situation where we can decide which tree we're going to abstain from. God defined that. God decided which tree was bad and which tree was allowed. So the human ethics is not inside us. We don't have any sense of human ethics. That, that, that ethics, that moral, that, that right or wrong comes from God. In James 2.10, we'll flip back there real quick, we'll see how in this case that we have a, a representation of all the commandments in this one principle. James 2 and verse 10 says, For whoever shall keep the whole law and yet stubble in one point, he is guilty of all. So, we're going to find here that the principles of the entire law, the whole law, are in this one uh, command that God gave Adam and Eve. That by disobeying this one rule, they broke all ten. Because if we think about it, we know what uh, Satan, and we're going to go over it here in a second, but we know what Satan uh, tempted her with, that he, she could be like God. Okay, well that's breaking the first commandment. You have no other gods before God. 
the the third uh, the third one uh, was to not have God's name in vain, right? And what did she say when she's engaging with God that oh we can't even touch that tree? Well, she he was she was using words that God didn't use. God didn't say you couldn't touch it. So here he she's attributing something to God that he didn't say. Uh, we see that. Uh, the fourth commandment, honoring your father and mother. God is the father in this situation, and they didn't, he didn't, they didn't honor the father. Uh, as far as murdering, she is the one that brought death upon the earth. There was no death before uh, the, this situation. Uh, when we have uh, the commandment about stealing, this was not their fruit to take. God said you can't touch it. He, she, she took it. Uh, coveted. Uh, it actually says, it actually used that term that she coveted the fruit when she saw it was good. And we could even say that the Bible over and over says that our relationship with God is like a marriage. So by not listening to God, she committed spiritual adultery. So she committed, she broke all ten commandments in this one thing. And by we see that when there's sin, that there has to be a law. And then the, the, the result of sin is death. So let's look at First John 3, 4. 1 John 3, 4. First John 3, 4. We're going to see this important principle covering the law, covering sin, and covering death. 1 John 3, 4 says, Whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. So in order for sin, there must be law. And sin is the transgression of the law. So we know that when there's this rule here that could present itself that if they break this rule that they sin, that there was a law. There was God's law that existed before the fall. That God didn't just give us this, this make up these rules to put us into bondage. That sin is what put us in bondage. The first part of Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death. We all know that term. We don't have to turn to it. But was Adam and Eve expected to obey? Absolutely. For to be death, there must be sin. And if there was sin, there must have been the law. So let's, now we're going to stay in Genesis 3. We're going to stay in Genesis 3 for a while here. Let's go over the first six verses in very detailed progression. Uh, we're going to find here that Satan repeats his lies that he told in, in heaven here on earth. If you remember the last sermon that I gave, we went over a lot of the details of what Satan lied about and what he did in heaven. And we'll find that Satan is the master psychologist. He's the expert at playing games. That the only protection that we have from the devil is to obey God. To just say no that I will, I, will, I will obey God. It's that simple. But in Genesis 1, Genesis 3 in verse 1, we'll see, we see, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said you shall not eat of every tree of the garden? So Satan here wants to engage Eve, right? He misquotes God. Because God says you can eat of every tree except one. But Satan comes along and misquotes him just a little bit. Did God say you can't eat from every tree? 
And that immediately, what's our gut reaction every time somebody says something wrong? It, it, it's either angry or frustration or we want to correct them. We're like, no, 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 that's not right. You know, and we want to fix it, you know, because we want to get them on the right path, right? And we're going to see, let's continue on in two and verse, verses 2 and 3. It says, And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said. Now here's where she's adding to. She not only corrects him, but then she starts adding to and starts providing the consequences and things of like that. It says, God has said, You shall not eat it, you shall, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. So, Satan knows Eve is going to correct her, and he, she does correct him, but then she adds those consequences, and she adds that. So he's successfully drawn her into conversation, because now she's even adding more to the conversation here. In verse 4, we see, Then the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. So now this is the first big lie of human history. Satan's basically saying, You are immortal. The problem between what God said and what the serpent says is that it starts to plant this question in Eve's mind. It starts saying, what reason does God have to not tell us the truth? What is God's ulterior motive? Why, why, is he, why would he not tell us this? You know, why is the serpent saying this? So in verse 5 we read, For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened. And you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So here, God answers that question, right? So we, we, he, he says something that provides this question for, us to start to, for Eve to start questioning God. And then Satan, of course, goes ahead and continues and answers that question. That God is selfish. That God wants to render us to blind service. That he doesn't want us to know these. That he's laying down ground rules to make us slaves. That God is not allowed to be, or not allowing us to be self. To not allow us to figure these things out. So, basically, he's saying here, he's almost, they're almost, if you read between the lines, Satan is almost suggesting that at one point in time, God ate from this tree. And God figured out that this made you wise and gave you good and evil, right? Made you understand good and evil. And now God's going around telling everybody, you can't eat from this tree. And you can't have it, so you can't be like me. So that's what he's basically done is, is created this, desire, uh, this misconception of God's character. So let's read uh, verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, you see how all the senses are being used here, and the tree, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Now at this point in time, she's seen these things, she saw that it's good for food, it's pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise. Has she sinned? Not yet, but... In a way, she kind of has, because which comes first? The, the, the transgression, the misunderstanding of God's character, or the carrying that out, right? I mean, the, what happens is, when once we misunderstand God's character, the sin is automatic, right? And so, 
we can say that she has not yet sinned, except because we want to understand that, uh, sure, if we're tempted, we haven't sinned yet. But she's beyond temptation here, right? She's beyond temptation because she says, so when the woman saw the tree was good for food and, saw, and that it was pleasant to the eyes and the tree was desirable to make one wise, she's beyond temptation. She's lingered onto this thought and, she, and the, the, the sin has already been done. So the action of eating the apple or fruit or whatever it is, is already taking place. I mean, in her mind, it's just a matter of her actually finishing it and taking care of this. So she says she took its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. So Adam and Eve exercised free uh, freedom of choice and ate of the forbidden fruit. So now let's continue reading and look at the fruit of Adam's rebellion. Verse 7 says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves covering. So they broke the law, they sinned, and they were left naked. They were left spiritually naked first, and then they realized after that robe of righteousness disappeared that their physical nakedness. And so now they needed a covering, and they used fig leaves. The fig leaves represent the excuses that we make to cover our sins. We make these excuses and justifications for whatever sins we have in our lives. Genesis 13, or, uh, 3, 12, and 13, it says, Then the man said, The woman you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit, of, gave me of the tree, and I ate. Another excuse, another justification, pointing to the other one. It's her fault. And, the, and continuing on, And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So again, it's these justifications. It's trying to, trying to pass the blame, trying to figure out how to not suffer the consequences. They suffered not only the physical na- nakedness, but that spiritual robe of righteousness was removed. And what we're going to find, if you read in 1 Corinthians uh, 5, we don't need to turn there, but in 1 Corinthians 5, we'll stay in verse, uh, Genesis chapter 3, but 1 Corinthians 5 talks about how death is like that nakedness. So let's continue reading in Genesis 3, and let's read these words of hope. Genesis 3, verse 15. This was the scripture reading. He says, And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed, and he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. So he's saying that I'm sending a seed to crush the head of this serpent. And so there's a seed, there's a Savior coming. There's someone that's going to come, and you're going to bruise his heel, but he's ultimately going to crush your head. And that's giving hope to them. Now, If we read in verse 19, continuing on, verse 19, here is the punishment given out to uh, Adam. It says, In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return. So the result of disobeying God's command basically to sin, to sin uh, as transgression of the law, is death. 
you first end up with spiritual nakedness. And then that leads to physical nakedness, realizing they were, they were naked. And it leads to ultimate nakedness, which, of course, is death. The ransom is found. God said in that very day that they ate, they would die. But why did they not die that same exact day? They did not quite actually just pass out dead. They didn't eat the fruit and then dead. Because that very day, there was a lamb that died to cover the shame of their nakedness. So let's read in verse 21. It says, Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God, made tunics of wool. No, wait a minute. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of cotton. No, not cotton either. Okay. Also, for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Now, what happens when you take the skin off of an animal? You have to have killed it first. So, this is the first evidence that we have of pointing even to the sanctuary because the sanctuary has the lamb and the sanctuary has uh, the, the, the whole symbology of blood of Christ. And so here we have God killing the first lamb, the nakedness covered by lambskins. The instant that Adam listened to Satan, Christ stood between them and said, I will stand in. Judge them again. Judge them based on myself. I will take that on. And we see that. We don't need to turn to them, but we'll see that in 1 Peter 1, 18-20, that it says Jesus was foreordained as the Lamb from the foundations of the earth. In Revelation thirteen eighteen, it says that Jesus was slain at the foundations of the earth. Not literally, but symbolically. That, his, that the lamb was the first to die, and that was leading forward to Jesus. So let's read a significant verse. We'll flip to John. John 19. We'll go to John 19 here. And we're going to read verses 23 and 24. John 19, 23 and 24. Uh, let's see here, John, oops, I went too far. John 19, 23 and 24, okay. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each shoulder a soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from, top, from the top in one piece. And they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they casted lots. Therefore the soldier did these things. So we see here that Jesus took on our spiritual nakedness, and that he actually hung on the cross. You know, there's a lot of people, there's a lot of representations, and we often see Jesus on a crucifix, and he'll have some sort of tunic or covering. But we can read that all of his clothes were gone, that he took on our spiritual nakedness and then literally hung between heaven and earth in physically naked. 
and that he ultimately suffered the ultimate nakedness of death. Did God look upon Christ as being guilty? Absolutely. He took on everything that we deserve. In Galatians 3.27, we will see how that we can be in Him. That the, the only requirement we need is to accept the gift that He's given us. And we see here in Galatians 3.27 how to accept that, how to be in Him. Galatians 3.27 says, For as many as you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So it's just like a robe. You put on Christ. Baptism is... Being baptized into Christ is when I put on Christ's righteousness. If we notice in the baptism service... And there are lots of churches that do them a lot of different ways. But we know in our church we do full immersion, right? What happens before you go under the water? You stop breathing, right? You stop breathing, signifying or symbolically representing that death. And then you go under the water. And you can't breathe under that water. At least you better not breathe underneath that water. So you're symbolically of going into the grave, being dead, and then coming back up. And the first thing you do is, and you grab that first breath of air and that resurrection. That symbolically represents the resurrection that, we, that Christ experienced. And that we can be in Him throughout that process. Let's turn to 1 Thessalonians 4. 1 Thessalonians 4 and 15 and 16. 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 and 16. It says, For we say to you by the word of the Lord that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord Himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. The dead in Christ will rise again. Why would Jesus come again if everyone was already in heaven? Christian hope is not found in immortality, but the resurrection from the dead who are in Christ. And at baptism, you are covered in Christ. And that's why baptism is so important that we're symbolically included in the death, the burial, and the resurrection. If we believe in this immortality, we're shortchanging Jesus Christ. We're saying we don't need Jesus Christ's death, that we already have immortality, right? And it's just a matter of which place we're going. But let's turn back to Genesis 3, and we'll see that after man was given hope, what happened? Genesis 3 and verses 22, and 20, 22 through 24, we'll see here, 22 verses 22 through 24, then the Lord, said, Lord God said, behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Right? So here, 
the God, we, we did not have immortality. We will not ever have immortality. That The tree of life is what provides that immortality. And God had to prevent them from eating from that tree to live forever as a sin. So there's never been an immortal sinner. And it goes on to say, Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the Garden of Eden till the, to till the ground from which was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed the cherubim at the east of the garden. Now, if you remember my first sermon, we talked about the sanctuary. And which side was the entrance of the sanctuary? To the east. And we had veils that were, all, that were covering the entrance of the sanctuary. And on those veils, what was, what was, uh, was, was embroidered into those veils? Cherubim. Cherubim were in, were, were in the veils. So we see these correlations between the Garden of Eden and sanctuary. So he drove out the man and he placed cherubim at the east of the Garden of Eden and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. So after man was given hope, he was cast out of the garden. And we see the, the relationship of the garden and the sanctuary and how, how similar they are. But there's no such thing as an immortal sinner, that that was blocked, that was prevented. Outside of Christ, there is no immortality. 1 Timothy 6.16, let's turn there quickly. 1 Timothy 6.16. 1 Timothy 6.16. We're going to read about the only one who has immortality. 1 Timothy 6.16 says, Who alone has immortality, dwelling in unapproachable light, whom no man has seen or can see, to whom be honor and everlasting power. Amen. And if we read, if we started back in verse 15, it says, which He will manifest in His own time, He who is the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who alone has immortality. And we see in some version it says, who only has immortality. So who's the only one to have immortality? Jesus, God. So let's look at Romans 2. I'm getting good at getting you guys flipping through. You guys are going to know the Bible like the back of your hand by the time you're done with my sermon series. <laughs> so Romans 2. Romans 2 in verse uh, 6 and 7. Romans 2 in verse 6 and 7. We're going to find that immortality must be sought. It means we don't have it. It says, "...who will render to each one according to his deeds." Eternal life to those who by patient continuance in doing good seek for glory, honor, and immortality. That we must seek it. That we must seek to even do good, to be honorable, and to be immortal. That we have to seek out God. That we can't find that internally. That we can't find that of ourselves. That we can't determine what is good and what is evil. In Second Timothy... I know we were just there, but we're just going to go back to 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy 1 and verse 10. Second Timothy 1 and verse 10. It says, but, now has been, but has now been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who has abolished death, death 
and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That Jesus brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That He brought it. That it was never there to begin with. There was no heaven. There was no resurrection. That immortality must be put on. So, let's look at the last verse here. First Corinthians, First Corinthians fifteen. We're going to go First Corinthians fifteen, and we're going to read fifty-three and fifty-four. We're going to see how immortality must be put on; that we can't shortchange Jesus by believing that we already have immortality. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 53 and 54 says, For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. If man is immortal by nature, then why would Jesus have had to die and give what we already had? If immortality, immortality is exclusively God's. He has several things that are exclusively His. He has omnipresence. He has omniscience. He has uh, immutability. And He has immortality. Satan laid the foundations of spiritualism by his lies. And there are two lies here. And he lays the foundations of all other religions that we find in the world today. The first lie was you will not die. That even God, to, to prem, put forth the premise that God cannot even eradicate us. And I've told you before that I've had discussions with people in my own family that have suggested that the devil will never be destroyed but we know from my last sermon that we know that that will happen that we that they create some sort of oh well the bad people will be burnt in hell forever indestructible that they will just be tortured forever in hell and that doesn't sound like the god i know we know that the wages of sin is death and we know that the bible says that this death is like a sleep but that that final death is a perpetual sleep forever gone the second lie of course was that you will be like god knowing good and evil and this is the foundation of all the post-modernism that we see coming into the church we see this in the emerging church how these different beliefs are coming out that don't tell me what the bible says don't tell me your ethical system that i can decide what's good and i can decide what's right or wrong i know there was somebody once I was talking to that they were telling me about how somebody came to them and wanted to get married and they were Adventists and this person suggested that before you get married and it's okay but before you get married you should stop living together and let God rewrap the gift that they have to give to each other right so he tried to provide this suggestion as delicately as possible to not judge this person to say oh well you're doing this wrong you're not really an Adventist or whatever else but to delicately suggest that they split apart 
Allow this gift to be rewrapped. Allow these things to, to, to heal, to repent uh, of things. And boy, that was the end of the world. Don't tell me what the Bible says. Don't tell. And it, it drove up a lot of anger that people really hang on to these sins. That I can decide what's right or wrong. That I can decide what's good or evil. We see all kinds of things coming into the church these days. There are a lot of things that we probably shouldn't even talk about. But um, good and evil is defined outside of man. It is defined only by God in His holy law. We must live like Jesus did by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And we talked about that in Sabbath school, that we should be living by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. If it did, when Adam and Eve were standing there and, and, and the devil was tempting Eve, Eve, all she had to say was, God said no, and walk away. That's it. Live by every word that comes out of the mouth of God. But no, she engaged. The only way to be safe from the devil is to not argue with him. Let's not even engage with him or figure out or, or try to argue him or correct him or do any of these things. Let's take the Bible as it is written and understand that God's way is the only way and the best way. The devil wanted people to think that if you get rid of the law, that you'd be truly free, that you'd be emancipated, that you'll be able to live and decide on your own ethical lifestyle. Has it worked? I mean, we look at the world and we have wars and rumors of wars and we have murders and corruption and theft and, I mean, just anything is accepted, you know. There, we've, we've passed laws allowing what is marriage and what isn't marriage and then guess what's coming up now? We have uh, people wanting to get married to inanimate objects or people wanting to get married to animals. I mean, there is all kinds of things that are popping up as a result of this. If that's okay, then this is okay. And if this is okay, then this over here is okay. And where does it end? If we can decide our own right or wrong. What is the world like without the law of God? The devil wants to get rid of it. Any theologian that says the law was nailed to the cross, that the law is done away with, we're under grace, that God doesn't expect us to even keep the law. It's done. They're simply repeating the same lies that the devil told in the Garden of Eden. The very first set of lies. Our only hope of life is found outside of us in Jesus Christ who came and died for our sins. Our only hope of knowing good and evil is also outside of us in God's holy law and holy word. I pray to God that we will live the way that Jesus did. Have you noticed that every time the devil came to Jesus when he was out in the wilderness, that the de Jesus didn't argue with him. He didn't say, oh, well, I think this, or well, actually, if you look at it this way. He simply said, man shall not live by bread alone, but he shall live by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. Amen. If you'll bow your heads with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we are so grateful for the lessons that you give us in your Holy Word. God, we see that the entire Bible is laid out in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 
And beyond that, the entire lessons that we see outside of those three chapters are just an expansion of the same concept. The battle between good and evil. To, to see the value in following your way. To see that you have grace and mercy to allow us to come back once we see your truth. But see the value in your law. To see the value in your holy word. To understand your true character isn't to hold us back, to put us in slavery, to put us in bondage, but to actually free us. We see that sin is the bondage. We see that you have nothing but the best intentions for us. That you're showing us the only way to live. God, we ask that you continue to feed us and nourish us with your word. That we may accept it as the bread of life. In all these things, we pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.